Welcome back, everyone. And again, uh, greetings uh, throughout uh, North America, some people in Europe. Uh, good to be here again. Again, for anyone who came in later, my name is uh, Donald Rothberg. I've been helping with this Wednesday morning teaching for, uh, gosh, uh, almost 20 years. Uh, Sylvia Borstein started it uh, almost uh, 30 years ago. So I want to explore uh, in this session further the theme of practicing with views or opinions or beliefs. Uh, generally I've called them views. There's a, a word in the languages of Buddha and the Buddhist tradition called uh, ditti in uh, Pali or jisti in Sanskrit, which is usually translated as views. And I'm focusing on this because I think it's such a central part, both of our individual practice and I think also of our collective practice in the society. And I think probably we could generalize and say in this world, at this time. Uh, so it's a question of how do we relate to our views, our opinions, our beliefs in a skillful way? How do we do that with our own minds, in our relationships, in our uh, communities, in our larger society? Um, and again, uh, as we explored some right after the election in the U.S. It's a very powerful question right now because people seem so separated by strong fixations on views and it can be very hard to uh, communicate when there are such different views, even in, uh, even in families or in extended families. And uh, the sense of views is something that we can look at both in terms of views about ourselves or views about the world, views about society, social and political views. But there are also, I think as we saw, there are views that are held half consciously or unconsciously about ourselves, about others. And so one who in the session today do a fairly brief review of some of what we've covered in past sessions. This is the third session, according to my count, in which we're exploring views. And I'll do a um, fairly brief review of some of what we've explored so far, and then go deeper with a focus on um, ways of, um, what should I say, of going very, very deeply in our investigation of views. And I'll particularly focus on one approach or one method that comes out of the Buddhist tradition, particularly connected with a, a great being who lived about uh, almost 2,000 years ago named Nargajana. So I brought out, I think, in the previous sessions that a certain, certain approach to views is um, very, very crucial in the original teachings of the Buddha. 
the Buddha talked about having a mature or right view, a skillful view, but he also, as we saw in a number of different ways, was deeply questioning of any fixation on views, either in terms of grasping at a view or pushing away a view. And that, uh, so the, the approach that we're really pointing towards is that we can use views skillfully to help us with learning, awakening, navigating certain territories. But when we get, when we uh, find ourselves <clears throat> becoming fixated on views, that's when problems arise. And that's really where the focus is of the teachings, that we can get uh, fixated on views, attached to views, uh, aversive towards other views. And uh, this is particularly what the teaching's about. So I mentioned how there are a number of different teachings where this comes out. One of them was the teaching of what's called the uh, poisoned arrow, where the Buddha said, uh, and he was particularly referring towards metaphysical views, that certain views we really uh, can't really answer. And he said, if someone is shot by an arrow, if that person asked, I want to know exactly who shot the arrow. Who are the parents? What was the complexion of the person? Uh, what kind of arrow was it? Uh, the Buddha said, if those questions were asked, the person would surely die and the, and the questions would never be answered. So again, any approach to views has to be, has to be practical, has to be, and we have to look out for the dangers of getting attached to views. There's also the, the well-known text, which I've referred to, where the Buddha says, my teachings are like a raft that take us, as it were, to the further shore. And when you get to the further shore, do you still carry around the raft on your back? That would be foolish. Another text he has, uh, he's in conversation with a people called the Kalamas, who, uh, who are very confused about views because they're at a kind of a crossroads and they get all sorts of spiritual teachers with all sorts of different views. And the Buddha counsels them basically, don't believe it because it's tradition. Don't believe it because it's written down in a text. Don't believe it because it comes from an authority. Don't believe it because it comes from a teacher. Rather, explore it yourselves and see what is conducive to your well-being. So again, uh, teaching after teaching in which the message is don't become attached to views. Watch out for views, even the views that I might give. We might say even the views of the Buddha. And he questions um, whether any metaphysical views can actually be answered at all. So he cautions against being caught up in views like, you know, is there, um, is the world infinite? Is it eternal or not? Uh, not to be caught up, we might say in our time, we can get caught up in views. Is there free will or are we completely conditioned and determined? 
Uh, and he says, don't be caught up in these metaphysical, almost unanswerable um, questions. And so um, it's also striking that, of course, there are views in the Buddhist tradition and people can get uh, very attached to those views. So this is really a setup for criticizing any kind of attachment to views, any orthodoxy, any dogmatism. So quite striking that this comes nearly 2,600 years ago. Uh, questioning of any orthodoxy in views. And again, the problem is uh, with views is that one can get fixated on them, attached to them, become dogmatic. Last time, I also mentioned that this is actually um, a deep issue in several other ways because many, you know, one, one perspective is that many of our views are not conscious. That makes it trickier. Many of our views are more habitual, semi-conscious, or unconscious. And Examples might be some of what we may have been set up for when we were young or children. We may have views that we're hardly aware of that we internalized and didn't know they were views when we were four or five years old. And I, I think I've given some examples of this. One example would be, I think, like uh, what happened to me personally when I was very young, I pretty much got the message, don't be angry. Anger is bad. A lot of us got that message. And so I had the view, anger is bad, but I didn't know I had that. That was just my, it was operating, as it were, mostly beneath consciousness. We get other messages sometimes about our self-worth. I'm not okay, or something is weird with me or wrong with me. You know, and I, I explore this in teaching on the uh, judgmental mind. I explore this territory a lot. And most of us have unconscious views like that. And part of what happens when we get older is we start to see them more. We may work with them. But it makes it trickier because a lot of our views are not conscious. Some of our social views are not conscious as well. You know, the research on... Um, Implicit bias related to, could be related to race or age or gender or all the social hierarchies in our society. Let us know that we often hold views and we don't even know we hold them. But they are, they're relatively unconscious or implicit. I also mentioned last time how there can be uh, a lot of um, social views that are deeply uh, manipulated and controlled in a different society. And people can have certain views simply because they hear them repeated over and over again through being in certain uh, bubbles or these days, you know, by going to certain websites. And uh, so it makes, it makes the question of views a little more complicated. It's not just, uh, you know, assessing a view. A lot of our views, we, we hardly we hardly know about. Mm -hmm. 
And that's, this is almost separate from the whole question of, uh, are our views well-grounded? You know, is there evidence for our views? Uh, do we have good, good data? And very often, our views are simply what we uh, like to maintain. And we don't necessarily check them out with reality, right? This is uh, obvious on a political level, but it's also something that we do ourselves. We may have certain views and not really check them out against data. So it's a, it's a powerful area, a uh, powerful area for practice, really, really fundamental. Uh, I gave also several practices that I think are foundational practices for working with views. The first is to try to be mindful of views, to try to see if we can notice where we have uh, fixations on views, where we get attached to views, where we are negative towards others' views in a reactive way. Again, because the problem with views is not having the views, it's the reactivity in relation to views. Really crucial point, I can say that again. The problem with views is not the view itself, but it's the attachment or reactive aversion towards the views. Again, this is going back to what I take to be the core teaching of the Buddha, which where he teaches about dukkha and the end of dukkha. And if you've heard some of my talks, you know that this is um, right at the center of all of our practice. And I like to interpret and even translate uh, dukkha as reactivity. So the heart of our practice is looking out for reactivity and views are one of the main places we find them. So our first practice will be just to have our radar out when am I attached to views? We can even say, what are my top five views or my top or my top 10 views? What are my views in the different areas of life? Do I have a sense that of even uh, relatively unconscious views or semi-conscious views? Do I have a sense of some of those? And I can also, when I'm being mindful of views, I can ask, What's my experience like when I'm attached to a view? What do I find in my experience? So that's one broad area of practice. The second area is that I gave was doing inquiry when we notice a charge around views. And what I'll talk about later is sort of an extension of this. And so when I notice myself having a charge, let's say, with someone else's view, I can do some inquiry. I can say, why is there such a charge? Is there something in my history that makes me really negative towards this view? Is there anything I can learn from this person, let's say, or this other view, if I'm negative towards a given view? What's my experience? Again, when I have this, when I notice this charge, towards the view. You know, and if we want to go further, we could do something like, um, we sometimes do this in our wise speech retreats. We could do a role play in which we take over someone else's view and have someone else role play uh, ourselves. That would be interesting. Another one would be write a love poem to someone with a different view. Or if not a love poem, 
at least a compassion poem or an empathy poem. But one can be creative with this and really explore, uh, explore what it's like to uh, uh, relate to another view where, where I have a charge towards the view of someone else. The third approach is, is, is related. It's to practice listening and empathy in relation to others with other views. And we've sometimes uh, worked with an empathy practice where we try to tune in. Let's say there's someone else who has a really different view and I'm getting a little bit tight and tense around my uh, reactivity towards that view. And I can uh, try to move to a place of empathy what matters for this person. What's the deeper, authentic value or need that's there? Even if I disagree with the uh, strategy that the person has taken, or even if I think the view could be said differently, right? What is the deeper value? And I mentioned some of my experience a number of years ago when I and others did a retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory, partly in you know, bringing attention to nuclear weapons. We did an interfaith retreat, and we had lunch every day with the scientists and technicians who were developing the nuclear weapons, and often had discussions. We could often hear deeper values that were justifying them building nuclear weapons. The deeper values were ones like security and safety. Those are authentic values. We might say the strategy of developing nuclear weapons to be secure may be unskillful, but I can tap in in an empathic way to what was important for these persons. And that's something we can do with people with other views. Now there also are a number of deeper kinds of inquiry into views. That's what I want to focus on now. And I introduced this last time and I mentioned three types of inquiry which can take us even more deeply into looking at our views. And all of these approaches take as their starting point noticing some way that we are fixated on a particular view. And we take that as a starting point for inquiry, for a kind of deep inquiry. And I mentioned three approaches. One is one that I've worked out myself in the work I do with uh, transforming the judgmental mind, which I sometimes talk about on Wednesdays. And in that work, we would take the noticing of a judgmental expression where there is some reactivity about a view, where there might also be some validity in what we're saying. We could be judgmental and reactive about... Uh, Injustice, for example, or about someone uh, doing something that's problematic in relation to us. The example I sometimes give is someone doesn't keep an agreement and I'm very judgmental. Well, it's good for me to come back maybe and talk to that person about the agreement, but my reactivity is something else, or I can be reactive about injustice. There's something important in the noticing of injustice, but I'm still can look at my reactivity. So we could take this as a starting point because the understanding of the judgmental mind, the way that I work with that, is that the judgmental mind is a mix, typically, of some 
noticing or discernment and reactivity, and the reactivity tends to poison it and lead to dukkha, lead to what we sometimes call suffering. And if we can disentangle the discernment from the reactivity, we can do that with a kind of deep inquiry and different practices, then we can use the discernment more skillfully. And so there's a whole set of practices, which I think I'll come back to in a later session, in which we do a deep inquiry, particularly with um, some of our most repetitive patterns that could be called limiting beliefs. Something like, I'm not okay. Or, you know, what I've heard a number of times from people, if something goes wrong, it's my fault. Many people start believing that view when they're very young. It's a natural way that a child relates to something difficult. You know, or a view that could be uh, again, relatively unconscious that I've heard from a number of different friends whose parents divorced when they were seven or eight or ten, and they develop views, if someone gets close to me, that person will abandon me. Right? This is what we call limiting views. Right? And we can look into those and work through them through a kind of deep inquiry. There's a second kind of inquiry, which, which I, I think I want to look at in a future session, uh, that I've learned quite a bit about from the work of Byron Katie. And a number of you know the work of Byron Katie. She has the same starting point. Notice any sort of fixation on any view whatsoever. And that's the starting point for another kind of deep inquiry. Her inqu in her inquiry, one asks four questions. The questions are, is it true? Do I absolutely know it to be true? What's my experience like when I believe this? And what's my experience like when I don't believe it? And then there are other practices one do called turnarounds, which are, can be very interesting. And this can be an extremely powerful practice. I've taught a retreat once where we brought in those practices in combination with the work on the judgmental mind. It's very, very interesting. And so that's, that's a whole second area. And what I want to explore today is something that isn't uh, taught very much, uh, probably at Spirit Rock, or maybe, uh, you know, I may be the only person who teaches this, but this is going back to the great Buddhist teacher about views after the Buddha, uh, a teacher called Nargajana. I want to spend the rest of the time giving you a sense of another approach to deep inquiry related to views. And he's going to also be saying any fixation on views is off. And that's different from skillfully using views to help us with awakening. That's the fundamental distinction that he's going to make. And so I want to give you uh, some sense of uh, Nargajana, He's, again, he's um, sometimes called the second Buddha. And let's go with the slides now, Brian. So he lived, um, as is best known, around 150 to 250 in the Common Era. He did a, did a bunch of writing, and his core text is uh, called The Fundamental Verses on the Middle Way. So... I'll, let's stay with this just for a moment, and I'll say a little bit more about Nargajana. 
Um, according to some of his biographies, he was born into a Brahmin family in South India. At a, at a young age, he became a monk, and he but he and he studied a lot of the early texts, um, a lot of the early discourses of the Buddha, but also some of the other texts that were around, and he. Um, he found some issues with them, and he became aware of some of the texts that were circulating at the time called uh, Mahayana text, which said that some of the early emphasis of some of the schools of his time that focused solely on individual awakening were problematic because they didn't give enough attention to all the beings who weren't uh, monks or nuns. In other words, they they were overly selfish and focusing on just each individual monastic's uh, awakening. And out of this approach came the view of the centrality of the figure called the Bodhisattva, uh, literally awakening being who would be dedicated to all beings awakening, not just my own awakening. And so he went, he was uh, drawn to those uh, teachings and he went wandering and was in the mountains. And uh, while he was traveling, he would also debate with others. And he became a, a very expert debater. And he thought that he could almost uh, deconstruct anyone's views. He became, he became an expert at that. And in the tradition at the time, there were certain almost like uh, legends that uh, there were deeper teachings that would be uh, that were not disclosed by the Buddha that would be disclosed at a later time because people were not ready for them. Um, I was thinking a little bit of an analogy is things that get hidden in the National Security Archives and they say, yes, people can hear read these in 2050. Not quite a perfect analogy, but it's one of the examples that came to mind. And so, according to the legends, Nargajana was directed to go to a lake where he received teachings of the Buddha that had been hidden for many, many centuries. And out of this came his teaching. And in fact, his name refers to what happened at this lake. He was given the teaching supposedly by sort of like a snake goddess or snake god called a Naga. And in fact, his very name, Nargajana, means noble serpent. So let's go to the next one. Next slide. So you can see his name actually means noble serpent. The legend is that his teachings were given to him by snake-like beings called Nagas. They came out of the bottom of the sea and apparently to this lake. And the story is that the Buddha had given the teachings to these beings for safekeeping until the world was, was ready. So we go to the next one. We can see some images now. And you can see this is an image of Nargajana. And you can see above him, is like a canopy of serpents. We'll go to the next one. There are a bunch of images or Nagajan. I don't know if we can see these real well, but this is 
Nargajna again teaching, and you can see above him are snakes. Next. This is an image of that lake and of the Nagas coming out of the lake and giving the teachings to Nargajana off in the mountains. We'll go to the next one. These are other images. You can see these snake-like beings giving Nargajana text. And next, do we, yeah, a further, a further image. Yeah, I think that's it. So we can come back to, yeah, be with everyone. And so this has been, this has been, uh, Nargajan has been very interesting for me uh, personally, because I, I think I mentioned this last time. Um, I've been drawn to his text since I was very young. In fact, I learned about Nargajana before I even started to meditate. And uh, a friend of mine was doing Buddhist studies for a summer at Harvard University, and I visited him, and he was studying Nargajana. And I uh, started reading him, and this was actually um, before I even uh, started doing formal meditation. And, and so it has, it has there's some interesting uh, connection that there is for me. And also, I remember, I don't know if this is, has any meaning or so forth, but I know when I was a kid, I would have repetitive dreams of being in my house and being surrounded by basically large numbers of friendly snakes. And it was a repetitive dream, so I don't know. I haven't, haven't talked about it with therapists, but I, I, maybe there's a connection. I mean, interesting that, because this... Yeah, as you'll see, this is not, this is, uh, I don't know, it's not elementary material. Anyway, so, so anyway, that's some, that's some biographical background of uh, Nargajana. And there is, um, what, he, what he basically does is he takes in this text, which is called, uh, you know, Fundamental Verses of the Middle Way. And there's, I think, a very accessible translation by Stephen Batchelor called Verses from the Center. I think I mentioned that last time. And uh, you can also look up Nargajana. But what he is basically doing, he is basically the uh, text has 27 chapters. They're brief. Some of them are just a page long. In each of the chapters, he takes a prevailing view of his time. Some of them are Buddhist, some of them are non-Buddhist. He takes them and he basically shows that if you have fixation and attachment to that view, you'll end up in contradictions. In other words, he is like a master debater, uh, in the language of his time, he would be called a dialectician, someone who engages in this inquiry that shows how no rigidly held view can hold up. And the reason he does this is he says, our most fundamental views actually come in pairs. And you can't just maintain one side of the pair. You can't maintain self without implying that there is another. 
you can't you can't maintain up without bringing in down you can't you can't maintain present moment without relating somehow to the past or future so he's basically going to say that when we get into views that try to say one opposite is true and the other one isn't you get involved in contradictions because they can't come in as a pair and they only make sense in relation to the other so that's that's a more general way of talking about it but what he again what the method does is it starts it the only way you can do this start with this is you have to have some attachment to view and then you engage in his uh way of thinking. And this is relating some to what we find with the Buddha. Because even though the Buddha had views, in some of in some of the text, you can see that he actually his deeper perspective, what he called the middle way, goes beyond the extremes. The Buddha once said, when you have opposites, portrayed as extremes, basically that leads to suffering. And even though in his own teaching, he sometimes gave one side of a set of opposites as the truth. He seemed to say, for example, that there is no independent self. The doctrine of anatta, or not self. But when you actually look more closely, that is actually not really adequate. And so there are places where the Buddha comes up and more or less says a deeper way to understand this is to say that if you maintain self, that's a problem. And if you maintain no self, that's a problem as well. Right? And there's, there's one text where he was talking with Vachagota, a wandering yogi, and Vachagota asks him, Gotama, is there a self? And the Buddha said, and the Buddha stays silent. Well then, is there no self? And the Buddha stays silent. And then Vachagota walks away. And Ananda talks to him afterwards and say, why, you know, why did you stay silent? He might have said, why didn't you give your teaching of no, of no self or not self? And the Buddha answered, if I had said there is a self, I would be siding with one side. He called these the eternalists. There's a continual self. And that would have confused him. If I had gone on the other side and said there was no self, that would have also led to confusion. And so I stayed silent. Right? And that, I think, is more the expression of the middle way. The Buddha is saying... Watch out for concepts which get arranged into dualities, and we choose one side of the duality. And this is very relevant for all sorts of ordinary interactions. Again, the problem is not is to uh, be attached to a view, and the question is how do you use it skillfully? Look at any view where is it one's attached to, and so. What Nargajana does is says that a primary way to deepen our practice 
is to look out for wherever there is fixation on a particular view and see if we can let go of that fixation. This is a very in, a view, an approach like this, very influential in Zen. The third Zen ancestor says, do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. And some of you know, uh, some of you know that some of the Zen techniques actually work with something that's that's similar to what Nagarjuna does. They they give a uh, a koan which doesn't make sense, and they ask someone to work with it until the mind gives up. What was your face before you were born? No. Or one teacher I met, uh, Sun Sanim, showed someone an orange and said, is this an orange? If you say yes, I will hit you. If you say no, I will hit you. What do you do? How is that? And so what, what, what this is, where this is going, one way to interpret this, where this is going is basically saying that much of our lives, we are caught in concepts. Our primary concepts come as dualities like self and other, knower and known, up and down, and so forth. And that to actually awaken, we need to move out of conceptual fixation, out of being attached to concepts and views, and this is, this is not easy. This is very deep. And so when you actually point towards what we could call um, awakened experience, it actually is beyond conceptualization. And when, the, when a, a, a group of researchers did work on the neuroscience of awakened experience, and what they found is that the primary parts of the brain linked with conceptualization are really out of operation. So that when one's, when one's awakened, when one's awakened, there is a going beyond the usual conceptual apparatus. One of the ways that one prepares for that is to look at any place where there's conceptual fixation. So let me give one example from Nargajana and then we can uh, then we can open things up. So I'm I'm wanting to give you this. This is not I, I don't know that I've given a teaching on Nargajan in this level of detail. I hope it's helpful. This is such a fundamental teaching, uh, uh, deeply influential. For example, much of Tibetan tradition relies on this whole approach and looking at conceptual fixation. So let me. Um, Yeah, let me let me give one example here. So let's go to our first, uh, our next slide, uh, please, Brian. Can we see this? Maybe make it a little bit bigger if we can. Yeah, hopefully we can. Yeah, yeah. Let's start at the top. Yeah, that's good. So. 
This is one of his chapters on this teaching about self and not self. And this has some very, some of his powerful lines. Again, this is from nearly 2000 years ago. What he's basically going to be doing is saying, if you fixate on self, that's a problem. If you fixate on no self, that's a problem. If you think there's a self that's independent from its constituents, like independent from the body, the thoughts, uh, the different experiences, that doesn't work. Because again, what he's questioning is the notion of an independent self. So he says, were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. So he's saying, if, 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 I were, if the sense of I or me was identical to all the things which come in my experience, the, my body, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, then I would come and go like them. They uh, are not permanent or eternal. And if myself was simply the constituents of my experience, there would be no independent permanent self. But if I were different than the parts of my experience, if I were something else, they would say nothing about me. In other words, if we say that my thoughts, my body, all the constituents which come and go are not me, then all of a sudden I'm coming into absurdity. So this is done very briefly. And then we, he goes on, what is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. So what he's basically saying is that thinking about self, thinking about me, mine, and other, is part of our normal conceptual conditioning. We work with certain constructions which have been taught us when we were young, but actually they don't hold up when you examine them. When you really think, oh yes, there's an independent separate self, that's not going to work. That's not going to hold up when you look at it closely. And it also, um, uh, he'll also say that saying that there is no self also doesn't work. And so he's saying when we can move out of self-centeredness, there's a kind of easing. I wouldn't use the concepts of me or mine. Again, I might use them as skillful means, but I wouldn't really believe in them. And then we go on to the, in the third paragraph, what is inside is me, what is inside is mine. That's another view. Okay, these are my thoughts. These are my emotions. He's going to say also, that's a kind of fixation. If we really fix on that, if we really believe it, that's a problem. If we just hold it as uh, conventional language that doesn't have ultimate meaning, then that's okay. When these thought ends, when these thoughts end, compulsion, um, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Let's go on to the next one. Next, just go down a little bit. Yeah. Fixations spawn thoughts. 
that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixation. Another word for emptiness is simply knowing that our views are constructions at best useful, but they don't have ultimate uh, link with reality. That's, that's a short view of what emptiness means. Emptiness means there's no ultimate reality linked to our concepts. Okay? Fixation, yeah, okay. Buddhists speak of self and also teach no self. And also say there's nothing which is either self or not. So he's, he's reducing this somewhat to absurdity. He's saying that none of the possibilities really make sense. When things dissolve, when we don't hold actually things and objects as ultimate, when we cut through language, in other words, and language is useful, but this is a, a radical pointing to how we get fixated on language, fixated on thinking that there's really a tree as opposed to a tree being a useful concept. Right? So, and I, I just want to say in advance that this can be a little bit unmooring. And any, does anyone feel a little disoriented? It can, it can open up to that. This is really uh, pointing to the way that we live in a constructed world and we can go into these kind of inquiries and see through our concepts. And this is, I think, where we need to combine these kind of deep inquiries with a lot of the mindfulness practice, the heart practices, the ethics that ground us. If we just did this, it could be a little bit ungrounding, so need to ground it. So we'll go, we'll go on. When things devolve, dissolve, there's nothing left to say. Language is, we're out of the realm of language when we go beyond that conceptual fixation. The unborn and unceasing are already free. We touch something that's um, beyond the duality of self and other, what, we, what the Buddha called the unborn, the undying. Buddha said it is real, and it is unreal, and it is both real and unreal, and it is neither one nor the other. And he's, this, is, this was the logical mechanism of the time of Nagarjuna. He's basically saying none of those hold. These are the four options. He goes on to say it is all at ease, it is all at ease, unfixatable by fixations, incommunicable, inconceivable, indivisible. This is the sense of ultimate freedom that he's pointing to. Let's go down a little bit. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. Let's go on to the last page. The next one. Yeah, on the left, yeah. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. And then he goes on to say, when Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. Okay, let's take this, this off. So this is, this is what I was introduced to when I was 21 or 22, before I started meditating. And it's, um, this was a sample the core of it, though, is something that we can really work with by really looking at, out for 
any kind of fixing or grasping or reactive pushing away of any concepts or any uh, views. And Nargashana did this with all the views of his time. He thought that this applied to Buddhist views as well. One of his famous lines was that people who get really fixated on the, the, the uh, teaching about emptiness, he said, believers in emptiness are incurable. <laughs> so he said, don't even get attached to the Buddhist views. Watch out for that. So this is a formula for looking out for any kind of uh, orthodoxy, uh, for using concepts uh, skillfully. And and really, can we use our views and concepts in a practical way and see where we get caught by them? So I think I will end with that. I hope my short introduction to Nargajana made some sense and was accessible to some extent. Let's just pause for a moment and we can come back and talk with each other. See what may have been helpful, useful for your practice from the talk, and also see whether there are any questions you want to bring up or comments, reflections. Good. So thank you. And see if there are any uh, reflections or comments. You can either put them in the chat or, and Brian will read them, or you can use the raise hand function. If you uh, raise your hand, you'll click on the participants button at the bottom of your screen. That'll open the participants window. At the bottom of the participants window, um, is a button raise hand, so that's that's a, that'll show us the order of hands that are raised. Yeah. Um, so this again, the the discussion Nagarjuna was in the context of looking at some fairly uh, powerful methods of inquiry into views, and I mentioned there were two others. We may find those a little more accessible or not, uh, but uh, the one the one of Nagarjuna is, is is based on looking at a fixation on view and looking carefully at it and actually seeing that if we really hold it, it doesn't make sense. So any questions or? There's a comment and a question in the chat. Okay. Um, first of all, just a special thanks to Donald for the teachings today. And the question is, uh, what does the Buddha or Nagarjuna say about God? There's also another question that just came in after that. Yeah, um, I'm not aware of uh, passages where something like the notion of God 
is mentioned, um, there, you know, the the approach that we have in Buddhist practice tends to actually uh, be similar to I think what we find in Indian tradition generally, which is to say that the deepest reality is not a being, but it's a kind of, uh, ex- you know, in, in Buddhism, we would probably say it's an expansive awakened awareness that is, uh, that is non-dual. You know, in simple language, we would talk about it, uh, this is a phrase that Ramdas used, the basic reality is loving awareness. In some traditions, that's attributed to a particular being. But I think in uh, Buddhist tradition, it's more just of the deepest nature of reality is a non-dual loving awareness, which is also beyond ordinary concepts. And that's some of what Nargajana was pointing to. And and really, I think part of the... uh, deeper intention of the work is to say we can have that uh, the deeper experience but it won't occur if we are caught in concepts and I would say that's both if we're fixated on concepts but even if we are primarily in a conceptually mediated way of living and so that's where again that the research the recent research is very interesting that shows that that experience of loving awareness actually only occurs when I think the main part of the brain responsible for the use of concepts is somewhat disabled or or not working in the usual way. (coughs) So, yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, I've heard, I've heard, I've been around, uh, uh, Christian contemplatives who were able to say uh, that what we're talking about as loving awareness or even emptiness is the same as God. I've heard, I think David's uh, brother David Steinelrost once was, there were, there were a lot of years of Buddhist Christian dialogue and sometimes I remember David Steinelrost said, emptiness is God. No problem. <laughs> Yeah, others... Uh... Yeah, there's a couple of questions in the chat, and then I see Victoria's hand up, yeah. and then there's another question in the chat after that. Okay. So uh... we'll see what we can fit in. Um, so uh, this person says, very reminiscent of the Tao. How does one avoid falling into the trap of superficiality or flippancy, i.e. nothing really matters or moral uh... relativism? Very, very, uh, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, right, there, there are dangers of this approach. And we can probably see a lot of them uh, around us. Uh, one of the dangers would be that people interpret this, and Nargajana would say, or the Buddha would say, in a nihilistic way. That, okay, nothing matters. Anything goes. There's no truth, right? Anything goes. And... You know, um, perhaps sometimes expressed by the phrase "whatever," right? Could be, um, and and it's actually explicitly distinguished from this. 
that would be actually one extreme itself. And it actually is based on a certain belief that, uh, you know, that it, it actually is still in the grip of the uh, dualism. But it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very great danger now. And that's why I think when I was speaking that if one's going into these kind of deep inquiries, it's very, it's very crucial to stay grounded in, uh, in ethics, in community, I think in regular, in regular practice, because uh, this is not a teaching that everything is relative. That, again, would be a view in itself, or that there's no truth, right? It's really pointing, it's, it's in a sense, a more advanced uh, teaching. But, yeah, that could be, that, that probably... I could probably say more to bring out that point, but I think that's it's a really, really important question. So, but this can lead to a certain, sometimes can lead to people uh, being uh, disoriented and saying nothing matters. There's stories like that in Zen. And, you know, one story, um, you know, um, shows a, uh, a Zen student who thinks that, okay, nothing matters, you know, and, uh, you know, goes around saying everything's empty. And it's apparent that the Zen student is taking on this more nihilistic approach. And the Zen teacher wants to check whether the Zen student really believes nothing matters. And so he starts hitting him on the head, or hitting, hitting maybe not the head, but hitting him over and over. And, okay, nothing matters. Is that right? Bam, bam, bam. The story, you don't know whether it's true. You know, um, bam, bam, bam. And he says, no, no, that matters. Don't do it. <laughs> and so he's actually, this is a sort of a version of the same teaching. He's actually uh, holding on to uh, a fixed view, masquerading as a lack of a fixed view. Interesting, right? Subtle to really look at that. So you find that in Zen stories because this is a danger. And it's, it's a major danger. I, I've been present at ceremonies where Zen teachers apologized for how they lost their ethical mooring in the first half of the 20th century, and often uh, many Zen teachers supported fascism in Japan in the first half of the 20th century. And you could find, when you, there's, there's actually a whole book on this which gives the history called Zen at War. And what you can find in the history are plenty of stories about Zen teachers uh, not really being grounded ethically and being collaborative with uh, Jap what we would call Japanese fascism and uh, even uh, justifying murders on that basis, right? And say we lost our ethical moorings. So I think if we're going to this territory, very crucial to stay grounded in that ethical way. So wonderful. It's a deep question. Thank you. And Victoria? Uh, there was also one more question before Victoria. Okay. Uh, so that was, uh, I hope you will present this material again in future talks. It is somewhat confusing, and I cannot imagine how I would apply it to my practice. Great. Thank you. Uh, how to apply it, yeah. It probably is more obvious when I go into the other kinds of deep inquiry, but I think that's a challenge. How to, how to maybe go have a little bit part two with a with a very very practical emphasis that's helpful thank you
the the it's really to the main thing would be to look for where there's some conceptual fixation that's you know that's already been said that we can do and uh, you know maybe maybe Nargajana's approach is a little more intellectual he's looking into how some of our core concepts don't make sense but 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 I think uh, I think the point is well taken so thank you for that how to make it how to make it practical okay other other than simply looking out for where one is uh, grasping onto concepts. The, the point is that I think with, with what I've been saying here is that there are more obvious ways we grasp and there are more subtle ways that some of our, even our core concepts like self or other, we get caught in those and, and can, uh, there, so there are more uh, surface level ways we can cut through conceptual fixation or fixation on views and there are deeper ways as well. Thank you. Uh, Victoria. Well, now, of course, I have a million questions, <laughs> but um, to um, try to maybe consolidate them all into a basic question. Um, I, I come out of the, you know, the Christian, Christian contemplative tradition. So there's the apophatic tradition, um, which says that just to use language at all is, um, is deceptive and, if one really wants to know God, um, uh, you can only use language to say what God isn't. Yeah. Because as soon as you try to use language to define anything, then you're, you're already going down the wrong track. Um, so I just wanted to, um, I, I, well, I, I, now I have so many questions because, because with Confucianism, I see an attempt to, um, to sort of establish an ethical, matrix for society and um and but confucianism has been criticized for not having a spiritual um focus it's 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 more about ethics and the the sort of the operations of of society so i'm wondering is there is that what did confucianism itself come about as a reaction to to a kind of void in spiritually that couldn't couldn't sort of anchor um, anchor values. I mean, even like the person who just asked about practice, it's sort of like there, there can be a, a separation between the abstract and the concrete or the theoretical and the practical. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Victoria. So I think, first of all, I think uh, thanks for drawing the parallels between what you find in uh, Christian tradition as well as in uh, Jewish and other Islamic traditions, uh, really questioning the capacity of language to uh, reach the deeper spiritual experiences and the and questioning the adequacy of concepts that's in the same ballpark so to speak I think as Nargajana that he's really wanting to say because I, I, I didn't I didn't say it crystal clear but Nargajana's main target were certain Buddhist views where, where Buddhists got fixated on their concepts you know, and particularly uh, a version of Buddhist psychology where they almost develop metaphysical views beyond what the Buddha had. And so he's basically saying language and concepts and conceptual views can't touch the deeper reality that we are, that we call awakening, let's say, or that Christians might call God. And, and so I think it's very similar 
to those who question the adequacy of language or even theology to be adequate to the reality. And that's, of course, got a lot of Christian mystics in trouble. Right. Right. Over the years, because it, it put them in some tension with those with power who, you know, and it's, it's also something which, as we were saying, can be misunderstood by many people, right? The concepts, you know, if the concepts don't really apply to our deeper uh, understanding, then what use are they? Well, the Buddha, you know, one, one line that I did not quote yet in Nargajana he says, he says something like, um, he, he talks sometimes about the difference between the absolute and the relative perspective. And he says that without, without skillful views, you don't get to the absolute. Right? He more or less says that. Without, without, uh, Without views, you don't get to uh, the absolute or the sublime or the awakened, right? And so he's trying to make a number of distinctions. And so in terms of your second question, I'm not uh, too much of an expert on Confucianism. But uh, what I do know that is that it is very practically oriented. There were parts of Confucianism particularly that developed under the rubric of Neo-Confucianism, which were way more mystical. It developed in the, I think, the 10th and 11th centuries. But the, um, yeah, a lot of, they, they were very critical of a lot of Buddhism for not being practically grounded, right? I know a standard critique was, you're following this guy? He left his wife and kid <laughs> to go into the forest. Oh, my God! What is this? Right? So um, that was the Confucian critique of Buddhism, right? And so it was, it was practical. So I think what's, what I'm pointing to is I think that it is there in the Buddhist tradition. There is that, that uh, practical grounding in being ethical, you know, in our mindfulness practice, in our heart practices. But then at, uh, at certain points in one's practice, as one is deeper or more advanced, one can, in a sense, uh, go beyond those. That's a clear way to say it, maybe. That there's, this is a, maybe, maybe a clear way to say it is that, uh, that this is pointing to, is that um, there are all sorts of elements of our practice that are very crucial. Being ethical, being mindful, working in these ways. And there are also are deeper dimensions of our practice. And some of the methods which I'm focused on today, what I'm calling deeper inquiry, can open up those deeper dimensions. And it's like, you know, another way to say it is that a sense of self can be very, very useful. I think sometimes when I've taught here on the teachings of self and not self, I've quoted from uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu, and he has a very nice quotation in one of his books where he says, a sense of self is very important to be accountable, to be ethical, to be responsible, to say, you know, we could say to be the one who says, yes, I will practice daily. Very, very crucial uh, for much of our 
much of our path of practice and there are places in our path of practice where one goes beyond that sense of self and, and even beyond the very usage of self. That's maybe a, a clear way to say it. And I think Nargajana here is pointing to a deepening of practice that's possible. But I would say, and I think he would say the same thing, only possible because more or less we followed those concepts, ethics, here's what you need to do to practice. And we didn't worry so much about conceptual fixation. But here, at a, at a certain point, <clears throat> a doorway opens where we can focus and go more deeply. That's, I think that's a clear way to say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So I think we're at time. Uh, Brian, are we, are we finished with uh, everything in the chat? There's uh, two leftover questions. Why don't you give them real briefly, and I'll be brief. Okay, so I'll just read both of them. Okay. Okay. Question number one is, or I guess this is a comment slash question. The concept of no fixation and dualities feels both really difficult to achieve and a relief to think of letting it go. Yeah. And the second one, uh, I realize there are views, mostly self-judgments, that I hold about myself that arise from my conditioning and are held subconsciously. I often encounter these when I'm sitting. I find myself intellectually able to dispute them, but they emerge over and over and the underlying emotions keep arising as well. Yeah. Could you say a word about this? Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's the territory that we look at in the work that I've developed over le- really the last 20 years on transforming the judgmental mind and there are a number of very practical ways, and you know, when I present that, it's it can be seen very, very practical to to work with uh, to work with those views. And you know, debating them intellectually generally doesn't work so well, but there are other ways of working with them that can actually lead to transformation. So I'll be brief there, but just to maybe a, a preview. Okay. So thank you for your patience with Nargajana. I'm. Happy to bring him in. I've been aware of him for well over uh, 40 years and uh, a great being. I hope I did him at least some degree of justice and uh, I want to thank you and may what is valuable from today be a benefit to us, to everyone in our circles and ultimately to all beings, which comes back and includes us. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for your patience with Nargajana. And I can say we can say goodbye now. Okay. Till next time. And you can stay on and unmute yourself if you want to. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Till next time. Till next time.